Very special welcome to guests, visitors, friends, family from out of town. Wherever you're from, you're welcome here. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. All right, here's the deal. It's December 22nd. Yes. And that means it's almost here, Christmas Eve. Isn't that amazing? And I want you to know I'm standing up here a very happy pastor. Because I love Christmas. I love it. I love it around here. I love Christmas Eve. It's one of my favorite services. I was thinking today just about how special that moment is on Christmas Eve when all of the candlelight has spread. The whole room is lit up with 900 people at the four. At the two, there's more room. So if you come to that. But anyway, there's all those candles lit and it's so wonderful and amazing and it's just wondrous, isn't it? So cool. And I'm happy because the forecast is warm and rainy, which means I'm not going to have to cancel church this year, all right? I still have trauma from canceling Christmas Eve two years ago, and some of you are still mad at me. You won't even make eye contact with me. My own daughters disowned me for an evening for canceling church my daughter, Bridget, she served at the two and the four. And so this was two years ago. She served at the two and four. During the four o'clock service, it started snowing. I had to make the call. We canceled the 11. She was looking forward to it. She got in the car. We're driving home. And I said, Bridget, I canceled the 11 o'clock service. And she said, what? And she started crying. She cried for 15 minutes. And I'm in the front seat going, yes. My daughter's crying because I canceled church. This is a pastor's happy moment, okay? <laughs> this is amazing. All right. We're not going to have to do that this year. But we are going to get ready today for that moment. Will you open in your Bible to the, the Gospel of Luke? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Here come the ushers with Bibles. Luke chapter 1 is where we go today on December 22nd. And... As you're turning to Luke 1, I want to talk this morning with you about the question that we often ask when we're faced with impossible circumstances. What is the question that you ask in the face of the impossible? Daunting, daunting circumstances that cannot be overcome. The question that you most often ask in that situation is, how, right? How, God? How am I going to get through this? How are you going to get me through this, Lord? How am I going to make it through the season in my life? How am I going to survive what's happening to me? Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? impossible, daunting, scary. Maybe some of you, when you came in this morning, this is where you live right now. This is your address. Something overwhelming, something daunting. And you find yourself saying, God, how am I going to get through this? Oh, it could be sometimes the most gut-level, honest question you could ever ask God. God, how? We ask the question, what, when we want information, right? And we ask the question, why, when we're looking for purpose. But the question, how, is a question about power. It's a question about resources. 
It's the question you ask when you need God to show up and do something impossible. And did you know, brothers and sisters, that when you, when, if you ever find yourself there in an impossible situation, you are actually a lot closer to the heart of Christmas than you ever realized. You ever thought about that? How can this be? Did you know that's a question that the most famous character in the Christmas story asked? How is this possible? You know who it is. It's Mary. We're going to look at her story today. Luke chapter 1. Will you turn there with me? Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Last week, Pastor Eric preached a sermon where he learned about Joseph, a wonderful sermon. He did such a great job. And today we look at Joseph's counterpart, Mary, and the impossible situation she found herself in. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what happened. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. I'm going to pause just real quick. I'll keep reading in a minute. But we just put your finger on that from God. Just hover over those words for just a second. Those two words, from God, those are the two most important words that you could ever say about the meaning of Christmas. From God. Christmas begins with God, all right? The angel was sent from God. That's what Christmas is about. There's no meaning to Christmas without God doing something, God initiating, God having a plan from the very beginning about something he would do. Now, for you, maybe you're thinking, this sounds obvious, Pastor, but here's the problem. Sometimes the obvious stuff is the stuff that we blow past and don't revel in. So before we go any further, I just want to revel in this for a minute. Think about this. Christmas is about the creator of the universe who's completely otherly. He's outside of all of this material space and time. That creator, that sovereign God, somehow breaking into his creation without ceasing to be the sovereign, uncreated, unlimited God. It's a miracle. Amen? I mean, that's why, that's why we love Christmas so much. That's why we, we worship at Christmas. It's like, there's something about Christmas that's so wondrous, so transcendent, so mysterious, because we know we're talking about a miracle here, a mystery. The uncreated God, who's not limited in any way, somehow entering into our universe and wrapping himself in created material without ceasing to be uncreated. How does that happen? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And this is why in our world, in our culture, even the most secular expressions of Christmas, they're always sort of rooted in the transcendent. Have you noticed that? Even people who don't believe in God as they celebrate Christmas, all of the traditions are hinting at this mystery, this transcendence. So many of the things we do, lights on trees, lights on houses, gift giving, hiding under all of those traditions is this sense of the transcendent. We can't help ourselves, right? 
I drove in here this morning super early. It was like 4.30 in the morning, and I'm driving through Lake Oswego, and I saw all of these houses covered in Christmas lights, like more Christmas lights than you can imagine. There's a lot of Clark Griswolds in this town, okay? And there's Christmas lights everywhere. Have you ever wondered where does that tradition come from? Did you know that it was actually Martin Luther was the very first person who put candles on a Christmas tree? Did you know that? Martin Luther did it. And then it became super popular. And that year, more houses burned down than any other. No, I don't know. But the story is, it's rooted in tradition. Martin Luther is walking through his little town in Germany in the 1500s. And he's working on his message. And he looks up into the stars. And he sees all of these stars through the evergreens. And he, and he remembered all these places in the scripture that promised light in the darkness. And so he went home and he went into his living room and he took candles and he tied them to his tree and he lit them and he pulled his children around and they celebrated. And now we all do it. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? We can't help ourselves. There's something about Christmas. Wherever you're at, even if you don't particularly like Christmas that much, even if Christmas is painful for you. In my own marriage, Kathy and I have completely different experiences of Christmas. I was raised in a family where my parents were followers of Jesus. And so as I was growing up as a child, Christmas was always kind of spiritual. It was centered in our church. There was a lot of wonder and worship and mystery. And I feel so fortunate for that. I grew up, my dad would put an Advent wreath kind of like this in the middle of our dining room table. And we'd pull together as a family and we would read part of the story and we would sing Christmas carols and we would pray as a family. And that was my experience. And then my sweet wife, she grew up on the other end of the spectrum, a really painful childhood with some neglect. Her father passed away around Christmas time when she was really young. So Christmas for her is is painful. She had to be Santa Claus to her little brother. It was just a different experience. So every year, Kathy and I will have this moment where we'll talk and we'll say, we have such different experiences. And we sort of work it through and it's an it's important moment. And it's a reminder to me, wait a minute, if that's happening in my own marriage, what is the spectrum of experiences right here in this room, right? By the way, after that talk later that day, I, I caught Kathy walking through the house humming, it's the most wonderful time. I was like, see, even you can't help it, right? But think about this. No matter where you come from, what your experiences are, what, whether you love God or you're still checking out God, there is a part of us because we are created in the image of God, we're longing for the transcendent. Amen? Aren't we? We're longing for it. And here's the thing. Christmas is about the transcendent coming down to meet us. It's amazing. It's a miracle. The uncreated, transcendent, awesome God of the universe wrapping himself in created stuff without ceasing to be who he is. That is impossible. How did it happen? Well, that's the question Mary's about to ask. So let's keep reading. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How? (laughs) How will this be? Since I'm a virgin, how? That's the question you ask in the face of impossible circumstances. How, God? This situation is impossible, right? If there is an impossible situation, this is the one. Mary says, how am I going to conceive since I'm a virgin? Literally, if you look at that word, the, ver- the word virgin in your text, interesting word. In the Greek, it actually means, since I know no man, which was a figure of speech for, in, for sexual relations, okay? Mary's saying, this is impossible. How can I conceive? How can I have a baby? Joseph and I are not married. We're betrothed, and we learned last week the difference between being betrothed and getting married, but Mary says, this is, this is not possible. I'm a virgin. I'm not married. Joseph and I have never had sexual relations. There's no way I can have a baby. How can this be? It's impossible. Did you know that the virginity of Mary is actually an essential part of the Christmas narrative? All right? It's essential. Now, maybe you, in your life, you've never actually thought that much about it because it's sort of a delicate topic, right? It's, in, it's intense. But one of the things that we do here at River West is we never avoid stuff that's delicate or intense. In fact, we kind of pride ourselves on talking about that stuff right here in church. Are you okay with that? If you're not, you'll leave in about five minutes, which is okay. We're going to talk about this today because, wait a minute, have you ever slowed down to think about why the virginity of marriage is emphasized so much in the Christmas story. Both Matthew and Luke, who are the two gospel writers who tell us the Christmas story, make a big deal about it. And and actually, in the verses we read at the beginning, 26 and 27, Luke tells us two times that Mary is a virgin before he even tells us her name. So this is a big deal her virginity. It's what we refer to in Christian theology as the doctrine of the virgin birth, or if we want to be more precise, and I want to always be precise, what we're really talking about here is what Christian scholars call the virginal conception, okay? What we're talking about is the doctrine of the conception of Christ somehow inside the womb of a, of a virgin. This is mystery of mysteries. This is impossible. Luke knows it. Luke was a doctor. You remember? We learned Luke is a doctor. Okay? 
So he knows what, I, what I'm writing you about is an impossibility. Yes, medical science has advanced a lot, but I guarantee you Luke had figured out as a doctor the connection, okay, between getting pregnant and the thing that comes before that, all right? It's not rocket science. He knows what I'm talking about here is mystery of mysteries, and it's right here, right at the center, heavily emphasized. And what you may not know is that this doctrine is actually constantly under attack in our world. Did you know this? It gets ridiculed. It gets criticized. Every Christmas, you, I go to the grocery store, and there's always Christmas editions of magazines and periodicals, right? Have you ever noticed that? And a lot of them will sort of criticize the virgin birth, make fun of it, talk about how irrational it is. I get it. I understand. We're talking about a miracle here. All you have to do is go home, go on Google, type in the, the virgin birth, and you'll see article after article after article, questioning, ridiculing, kind of casting stones. So I did, because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I wanted to see. So I did a web search, and here's some of the, my favorite titles of different web articles about the virgin birth. I like this one. Why the virgin birth is seriously messed up. All right. Okay, there's one. I like that. Why I deny the virgin birth. Okay. Here's my personal favorite, virgin on the ridiculous, uncovering the absurdity of the virgin birth, all right? And it's just on and on and on and on. In a New York Times op-ed, Nicholas Kristof wrote, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. Less intellectual, less intellectual. And that's how our world thinks about it. And you know, but you know what's amazing? In the face of all of that, most Americans still recognize how significant this thing is. In fact, many Americans still believe in the virgin birth. I was flabbergasted by this. So they do these polls. So just a few years ago, the Barna Group did a poll. They polled Americans. And I couldn't believe this. They discovered that 75% of Americans believe in the virgin birth. Can you believe that? That's, that's a big number, 75%. And then the real shocker was, the very next thing they discovered was 15% of atheists believe in the virgin birth. Now, just think about that for a minute, okay? <laughs> Imagine the pollster. Do you believe in God? No. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Yes. <laughs> Let's go back to question one. Okay. All right. It's resilient. But here's the, here's the really interesting thing for me as a pastor, and it's a sad thing. What's happened over the years is that many Christian leaders have even minimized the virgin birth. They're not, they, don't, they don't want to talk about it in public. They're embarrassed by it. And even some have said it's really not that important. It's not essential. You don't need it in order to still be a Christian. And, no, wait a minute. I want to be totally open to the fact that maybe even some of you have come in and you've heard that and you've thought, well, that must be, that must be true. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe it's not that essential. But what I'm going to do here today, in just a moment, is I'm actually going to argue just the opposite. I'm going to argue that this doctrine is not only precious, and it is precious, but I'm going to argue that it's critical. I'm going to argue no virgin birth, no gospel. 
You can't have the gospel without it. Okay. But before I do that, I want you to see something that Luke is after. Look at verse 37. We haven't gotten there yet, but, it, but I want you to see how this passage ends. This moment ends with the angel saying, nothing will be impossible with God. What Luke is doing here, his purpose is to present Mary's virginity as an impossible circumstance, an obstacle to conception that is so massive that it can only be overcome by a miracle. This is the point. The point is that even the entrance of Christ into our world requires a miracle. His life begins in a supernatural way. That's why he's so exceptional. That's why he's so worthy of our worship. Right out of the gate, at the moment of conception, Jesus enters into our world through something miraculous. Nothing will be impossible with God. Amazing. Amazing. How did it happen? That's the question Mary asked. Did you see that, verse 34? How will this be? Now what's going to happen in verse 35 is the angel's going to give the answer. This is how it will happen. And I'm going to read verse 35. I want you to look at it in your Bible. Here's what I'm going to say to you. I think verse 35 may be the most breathtaking, wonderful, awe-inspiring verse in the whole New Testament. It's incredible. Here's how it will happen. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I'm going to just leave that verse up there so you can revel in it. Okay? This verse is amazing. That word overshadow is a metaphor for the presence of God. In the, in the Bible, it always refers to a moment where God shows up in power and he surrounds his people with his miraculous power. And somehow, somehow, in this moment, slightly shrouded in mystery, it remains holy. It is completely holy, but some. How? The answer to the question, how could a virgin conceive in her womb? The answer to that question is, God pours out his Holy Spirit in that moment and does something divine, does something miraculous. I'm not even going to begin to pretend that I can explain to you how that happens biologically, physically, or otherwise. And I've learned never to say more than the Bible says, but I've also learned not to say less. And what the Bible is saying is that the, quest, the answer to the question, how can this be? The answer is the power of God's Holy Spirit. Amazing. Amazing. This might be the most wonderful doctrine, the most awe-inspiring doctrine. Ironically, some Christians go, oh, maybe we should minimize it. I would go to the other extreme and say, we should maximize it. We should be praising God for it. We should be rejoicing in it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Any takers? Not yet? Okay, we're getting there. Okay, I got to convince you now. Here are four reasons 
Merry Christmas. Here are four reasons, not just three, but four. You get an additional one. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the four reasons why I think you should actually treasure the doctrine of the virgin birth. Okay? Treasure it. Not just tolerate it, (laughs) but actually think about it. What I'm about to share with you, these are deep. You're going to have to think deeply. But if you do, I promise you, you you will leave here rejoicing, going, God, this is breathtaking. I want to worship you. Four reasons. I'm going to put them on the screen. Number one, the virgin birth makes Christ's entrance into this world as blatantly supernatural as his exit. (laughs) I love that. How did he leave this world? The greatest miracle that's ever been done, resurrection from the dead. And then not only that, ascension to the right hand of the father where he now sits eternally. How did that happen? By the power of the Holy Spirit performing a miracle. That's how he exited the world. How did he enter the world? By the power of the Holy Spirit causing conception to happen in the womb of a virgin. To God be praised. Amazing. Did you know that the Apostle Paul said the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you? Amazing. That's number one. Here's number two. This is deep. The virgin birth brings us as close as we can get to an actual description of the event of the incarnation. Okay? As close as we can get. Remember how I started the sermon? I said, we're talking about something otherworldly, uncreated creator of the universe who somehow breaks in, wraps himself in created stuff without ceasing to be the uncreated creator of the universe. Fully divine son of God, somehow uniting with a fully human humanity held together. It's what we call the incarnation. It's the mystery of, J.I. Packer called it the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. How does that happen? How can someone be fully divine and fully human? And how did it actually happen? The virgin birth is the closest thing we get to an actual description of the moment. Amazing. You have to think about it. Jesus was delivered, he formed inside of the womb of a fully human mother. So his full humanity is on display. Everything about his development in the womb happened just like it happened for you and me. The labor happened just like it did for you and me. Every part of his development except for one moment, the very beginning, the moment of conception where life sparks from non-life. That moment happened for Jesus differently. It happened in a miraculous way. It happened through the divine. Jesus had a fully human mother, but he did not have a human father. Joseph was not the father. Somehow, mystery of mysteries, God the Spirit takes the place of a human father so that this child can be fully divine and fully human, a God-man inside the womb of Mary. To God be praised. This is amazing. 
This is amazing. And it gets even more deep, okay? Number three. The virgin birth means that it is now possible for a redeemer to die. It's now possible for a divine redeemer to die. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in order for the redeemer to come and pay for human sin, that redeemer has to die. But we have a problem. God cannot die because God is immortal. So how will a divine redeemer enter into a situation where that redeemer, where it's possible for that redeemer to die? I'm going to put up on the screen an amazing verse from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Think about this verse this Christmas. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Do we have that one, Leslie? Here we go. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same thing, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The writer of Hebrews is saying, the way that the redeemer defeats death is by dying. So he has to be a divine redeemer so that in the process of dying, he can get inside of death and defeat it through the power of a resurrection to new life. And it's through that resurrection that he defeats death, defeats sin, defeats the devil. But how can a divine being die? There's only one way for that divine being to be united with a fully human body and become a God-man. The uncreated creator of the universe wraps himself in humanity, lives a perfect life for the primary purpose of dying for human sin. To God be praised. I mean, Merry Christmas. When you say Merry Christmas to me, that's what I'm going to think about, okay? And I'm going to say, praise God. Praise God. Amazing. One more. This one's for you. This one's personal. The virgin birth becomes a pattern in the New Testament for another impossible miracle. The miracle of conversion. Which, by the way, the Bible describes as a new birth. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? In the Bible, the primary metaphor for conversion is being born again by the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. It's the reason that that's true is because in the Bible, conversion to Christ is so powerful, so it's a complete transformation of my heart, my mind, my soul, even my body gets recreated to the point where the only metaphor that captures how transformative it is is the metaphor of being born again to new life. And the Bible says, when that happened to you, that was a miracle. Every time the new birth is described in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is there being poured out by God. And you were born again. And when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, it was the Holy Spirit who was there bringing about that life. Incredible. 
They're both miracles. Did you know, brothers and sisters, the most impossible thing that could ever happen to you has already happened if you're a Christian. Did you know that? That was impossible. Being converted to Christ, that is the greatest miracle that could ever happen. Amen? Isn't this amazing? See, we, we, we spend our lives looking for miracles constantly. When the reality is, if I love Jesus, the greatest miracle that could ever happen has already been done in my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. I meet Christians who they've, they've grown stale and they've lost their joy. And this is the sermon I want them to hear. Remember how much power God poured out to bring you to new life. It was a miracle. Praise God. Walk out of here today, brothers and sisters, thanking God for the greatest thing he could ever do. He brought you to Christ. He brought you to Christ. It was really neat. Last Sunday, I had a conversation with a young man who was here. He, he and I were talking, and his sister was standing next to me. And his sister is a, is a miracle story. And he told me, I've been reading through the book of Acts, and I've been reading Acts, and I've been seeing all these miracles. Have you ever read Acts and thought, yeah, why don't we see any of these miracles anymore? And he was saying to God, well, God, why don't I see miracles like this? And then he remembered that he had said to God in a prayer, God, if you save my sister, that will require nothing short of a miracle. And there he was standing next to his sister who's following Christ. Isn't that amazing? And some of you, you have an impossible story. You have someone in your life where you think, there's no way it would require the impossible for my friend, my spouse, my neighbor, my coworker to ever come to Christ. God, this would require a miracle. And Luke says, that's what Christmas is about. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Amen? I'm going to pray. Will you close your eyes? Let's thank God. Heavenly Father, we revel in this today. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel is not simplistic. It's not easy reading. Sometimes we read passages that are intense. They require us to slow down. They require us to think deeply. And yet, even that can be our greatest act of worship, thinking deeply about your things. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you for this time to be together, to worship, to read this incredible account. But most importantly, we thank you, God, for your ability to do amazing things. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for what Christmas is really about. Lord, I know there are some here today who are in really, really painful, difficult situations. Will you please, Lord, meet them today? Encourage their hearts. Remind them of who you are, Lord. Bless them. Get them through, I pray. Thank you, Lord. And we ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.